Hey folks, hope you're all doing well, hanging in there in your various lockdown scenarios. We're doing all right here. I was a little bit hungover this morning, I'm not going to lie to you. My girlfriend and I, uh, we uh, participated in a virtual pub quiz last night over Zoom with a group of friends and um, uh, our mates Keith and Jules put that all together and uh, you know there were a few wines consumed in the process but uh, such is this life, this lockdown life we lead. It's Sunday night when I'm recording this. Uh, I got up this morning to have a chat with my mate Joel Quartermain, who's uh, a really close friend of mine. He's one third of the band Eskimo Joe, who are an incredibly successful Australian band, but he's also an acclaimed producer and, and co-writer for a lot of other pop artists. He and I made a record together with my old band, um, the uh, Timothy Nelson and the Infidels album, Terra Terra, Hide It, Hide It. And we've remained best friends for ever since then. He's also produced artists like Meg Mack and G Flip and Fergus James. And we talked about, well, we, we, we covered a pretty in-depth history of Eskimo Joe and, um, and all the different artists he's worked with. Uh, and, of course, went off on various tangents talking about music in general and the songwriting process and... I decided to leave most of the conversation in um, because I guess what you'll just hear is just two friends just just yapping away. Um, Joel resides in Melbourne these days, and what what I've been doing lately for these remote kind of conversations is getting the guests to record themselves and then send me the audio, and I, I marry up the two. And so what you hear at the start here is a sort of an awkward attempt. <laughs> both of us on either side of the call trying to line up our recordings and which I accidentally left the metronome on. And um and my girlfriend Marcia does make a special guest appearance uh halfway through. Uh she <laughs> when she she very kindly handed me uh, a peanut butter sandwich while I was <laughs> while we were trying to have a discussion and which I discovered was of, of all the things to have in your sandwich it probably nothing could quite cement your mouth shut more solidly than the thickness of peanut butter so it's, it wasn't exactly conducive to the um conversational nature of what was going on um so you'll you'll hear a bit from her um and depending on when you're listening to this we are currently on the eve of the coronavirus social distancing restrictions being slightly relaxed here in Western Australia. So, you know, we're staring down the barrel of an interesting experimentation, you could say. That was something we we found out literally halfway through um, having the conversation. So um, that will come up as you're listening. Um, Anyway, so without further ado, let's get on with it. This is my good mate, Joel Quartermain, and here we are with episode five of your house. And I'll record the video. Should we talk in time? 120 BPM? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all started with... (laughs) Yazza, Nazza, Yazza. This is going to be terrible to edit. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just me, me and you in one twenty BPM. You, you saying yeza, me saying naza, yeah, naza, yeah, no, <laughs> for forty eight minutes. Yeah. What? So did you guys do a um a boozy uh what do you call it quiz night? Yeah, I think yeah. I saw Keith was the quiz master. <laughs> 
Sick. And was it general knowledge? Or? It, it was general knowledge. Cool. Um, so he did a, they would like share the screen and we'd see this PowerPoint thing with the, the, the question cards on them. Mm. And then we'd text our answers to Jules. I'm surprised it wasn't all about um, Oasis yeah, and whatever soccer team he supports. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, he actually wrote the questions. It seemed good. Like it seemed like a pub quiz. Like very, oh, cool. all very general. Um, what an effort. The one question that shat me off was um, what is the fictional town closest to Summer Bay in Home and Away? Who would fucking know? I was proud Sh- of Shelbyville. <laughs> was it was- Yabby Creek? No one knows that. The other one Not was even- who was the Greek god of wine and festivities, and I put Nick Giannopoulos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Correct. Sure. Yeah, that's science. And that's – so what, were you guys on the red wines or what were you, what yeah, were you yeah, chugging? Yeah, we, we got a new wine. We got a new booze cabinet. So there in the background. Oh, it looks – Right there. Looks great. Yeah. Mad Men style. Kmart, 80 bucks. Really? Yeah. yeah. Did you have to put it together? Yes. Yeah, there was Was that. it complex? Um, no, it was tedious – and I had one moment of genius and one moment of just complete nuzza that sort of cancelled it all out in the end. The moment of genius was they instructed you to put a screw on at the same time as this other thing. I thought, actually, no, you put the screw on after this other thing and I was right. So if I'd followed the instructions, the whole thing... You would have fucked yourself. Yeah, it would have been completely <laughs> fucked. But then in my... my cloud of you know patting myself on the back like yes ah, you know you know yeah how, how do you get that one <laughs> everyone's um, watching <laughs> everyone's out on their balconies <laughs> applauding us and then in, in this moment of you know uh conceit uh i put on a major panel backwards and we had the the wood facing out and the matte black finish facing the wall and had to try and prick these tiny nails, like 40 of them, out of the backboard to, to start oh. and involved a trip to Bunnings, uh, multiple purchases of different size nail. It oh, was just, no. It, yeah, and everyone was slowly backing into their apartments just like. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we knew it. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. It's, it's like the... Um, I know this isn't part of the thing, but it's like high-fiving, high-fiving the awesome melody. Yeah. And then you go, all right, lyric time. Oh, fuck. That, that is where I break down every time. <laughs> <laughs> this melody is amazing. Let's have lunch. Is that part of... Is A long lunch. <laughs> It never returns. Well, last time you and I tried to write a song, it mm-hmm. was it was a case of I just couldn't I couldn't think of any lyrics whatsoever. I think we got a v- like up to half a chorus worth, which was pretty good considering just how I was in. I think um, I was very tired at the time from memory. But is that? Yeah, and but you you were pretty. But when you're best mates, it's like you fucking let each other off the hook. Yeah, it could be that. It's you don't push. You're like, oh, didn't we just we went to the pub? Yeah, but that was a business trip. <laughs> Tax um, write off. 
Yeah, you'd, you'd been with Davey, right, before that? I'd done a day with, with Davey Lane, yeah. We, we, we wrote a song and then, then I came to yours and tried to write another one. Mm. I don't know, peanut butter was a great choice, babe. <laughs> <laughs> How is Marcia? Is she good? Yeah, she's good. I'm Where sorry. is she? Hey, Marcia, how's it going? Good. Oh, very how- nice professional voice. Thank you. And how, how are you today? Are you, are you feeling good? Yeah, I'm fine. I did get pretty drunk on red wine at the quiz. Yeah, awesome, but you bounced back. Yep. La- last night was the first time that Sarah and I got boozy Wow. The- in the whole thing. Like we've, ha- we've drank, both of us have had a drink every day. Yeah. But we haven't got gotten drunk That's and Sarah true. hasn't been much for a year and a bit anyway yeah, yeah. or even longer but yeah. um we both got on it a little bit last night because we had like a, a zoom thing with Cav and Beth oh, nice. because it was their um engagement oh not not their engagement their what do you call it anniversary and we didn't give them a um wedding present oh. like a year ago or whatever it was because we didn't go but um yeah. we did that and we ended up getting pretty boozy and today it's just like oh wow ton of bricks at least it's like <laughs> what 2 30 there so you've had a bit a bit of time oh, i feel yeah it's oh if this was in the morning it would have been brutal <laughs> but both of us are pretty dusty hey i think we're just out of form yeah oh yeah having a and, baby as well and like having to wake up early every day yeah it's pretty hard to chase her around because quick like she's just like running now, and her latest thing is she ru- she closes her eyes and runs. What? <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> genius move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it never works well. Oh, she- <laughs> Why does she do it? Fuck knows. We ask her, but she won't answer us. Oh God, and then she so, so she closes her eyes and she just runs straight into a wall. Like just veers left, bang. <gasps> The other she day she went herself? head first into the bottom hard bit of the couch, Aww. just yeah. closed her eyes and ran. So Sarah and I like, what are you doing? <laughs> so if you're hungover trying to, you know, yeah. cover that, Aww. it's fucking it's I loved hard. her little, um, that black, like, tut- ballerina costume. Like, I think Sarah oh, yeah. would call it the Beyonce costume or whatever. Yeah. So. Oh, she's so awesome. We go out dog hunting so, because because it's ISO and it's like stage three, the only yeah. like everyone's walking their dogs like flat out. Yeah, and um, she loves dogs, and she she barks. She goes hum, 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 hum. that that's her bark kind of thing every time we see a dog. So that's what we do. We go out for like an hour and a half, and I push her around like Middle Park looking for dogs, and she just froths. She's a cute ass. I can't deal. Like everything I see, I'm like, I want to eat that child. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. We're editing that in. Yeah. That's the opening line. You should save this for the thing. Anyway, just. It's all recording. It's all going in. One piece of advice. You need to do a like, hello, how's it going? Because like literally intro. Oh, yeah, none of the episodes have a proper intro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll leave you to it. See ya. <laughs> See ya. Joel Quartermain, how are you? <laughs> good, Timmy. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are we doing this? We're doing it. We're doing that. I might I might snip a few things out of that intro. See what I can salvage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, how have you been adapting to all of this? Um, it's been um, not too too bad. Is it that the start was a bit of a panic um, as far as uh, income going from some to zero in mm. in like twenty four hours, and there was a bit of a panic of oh how how do I pay rent? How do we look after the family? And that sort of stuff. And then once the once that sort of started to become clear and is still starting to become clear, then it then it got a bit more like just you accepted it. Yeah. Let it sink in and just went with it. And then there was a period of like, um, okay, so the income thing's gonna be slightly abated, but then how how do I work? Because um, you know, obviously getting in the room with people is pretty much where it's at for collaboration. And work for you is like, say, 20%, 30% Eskimo Joe stuff and then 70%, 80% production for other artists? Exactly. Yeah. So that, all the gigs dried up and that that's, you know, that's fine for Eskies um, and we'll wait to see what happens there. We've got... Um, you know, proposed tours and stuff coming up that we just have to wait on. But the um, the collab, you know, making, um, writing songs and producing songs, um, it was suddenly a thing of everything got cancelled, um, which, you know, money aside, it was kind of like how do, how do I do what I do from here? Um, because I think, you know, someone who's, you know, uh, creative or whatever if you if you have that taken away from you then um who are you Mm. (laughs) yeah and how do you get you know uh, how do you appease yourself or you know self uh validation or absolution or whatever the word is um and and do the thing that makes you tick yeah 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 and so you're have you figured out a way to write and produce songs with other artists remotely um yeah so i've uh been working with this other producer called edwin white and we've got a bit of a production writing team and and we just jumped on the phone and started workshopping and researching ways of doing that and and it turned out that that there was a few different platforms that you could use and since those first discussions we've watched a lot you know we talked to other producers and we've watched a lot of interviews about that sort of stuff and then ended up deciding that we're going to use an amalgamation of a few different platforms to make it work and and now we've done about four of them um and there's definitely been some of them have been more successful than others on it in a from a technological point of view but we've always got a tune out of it Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great, but we decided the other day, well, we were talking about it the other day and it's kind of like, you, you kind of have to wait till the day that you can pre-plan as much as you like and download all the software and all that. But sometimes, um, you know, if the artist that you're working with, that you're writing a song with and for, um, isn't that savvy on, you know, or doesn't have a DAW like Pro Tools or Reason or Logic or whatever, then... Yeah, you face a bunch of challenges with that and you just have to work around it and maybe write a song on Zoom. Um, and then some of the artists we've worked with have been really good in that respect and so we've made it work like that. And, it, you know, we've actually got a demo that sounds like a a record out of it. 
Yeah, yeah. And are you are you receiving what they're recording like like directly from them, or are they having to send things after the fact? Well, there was this there's this program called um, Connection Open, and and in in theory that was supposed to work where they would be recording a vocal, you'd be actually seeing them do it and it'd be coming up on your computer, their vocal, like no loss of quality in real time. Essentially, it's like they're in the next room, like they would be if you were tracking a vocal, but we couldn't get it to work. So for whatever reason, I think the, the technology is slightly behind the idea. Right. The the idea is amazing, but we have heard of, a couple of producers who have used it successfully, but you have to have like everything going in your favor, namely both ends being a really fast internet connection. Yeah. I feel like all these uh, great ideas that do kind of already exist out there that like the updates are just going to be coming hard and fast pretty soon, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to fast track this whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is great. And then, it, and then at the back end of that, there's no difference between doing a, um, you know, a remote session with someone in Australia as there is to doing one with someone in Nashville or LA or London or whatever. So, I mean, I think that's opening up those, like I got a couple of messages via Instagram today of um, people overseas saying, hey, do you want to hook up and write a song? So maybe that's just going to become more commonplace where it's just going to make the the collab world a lot smaller Mm. or accessible. From going from being a member of Eskimo Joe and in that band handling a large bulk of the production work to now being like a co-writer, producer for other artists, did you always want to be involved in music in that capacity? Yeah, yeah, so like, luckily with Eskies, I found a um, someone, uh, Cav, who I could, uh, the perfect collaborator to be able to develop that, where he had this strength of what he did, which was bringing the original idea and the narrative and the seed of the idea. Some of them would be fleshed out, some of them wouldn't. And then he'd show that to me and then together we'd get it to the point where it's a, a full song. And then as a band, we'd probably get together and produce it and flesh it out to it, to what you hear on the record. Um, so to be able to do that for, you know, X 15, 16, 17 years and work with all these other producers and engineers at the same time, it was a perfect education in, um, in doing what I do now. But I think if Eskies hadn't um, become a career that was a full-time thing then I probably would have just gone into the production writing thing from the start so I would have been doing the same thing minus releasing and touring and and all that sort of stuff how old were you guys when you first started working on music together um well I think uh, I met Cav at his high school my my band went and played a gig at his high school and he was in a um he was in a band at the same gig but he was playing in a, a death metal cover band like playing bass of course he was and yeah, yeah, classic. And then he like came up and said, "Hey, man, do you need a um, a bass player or a singer? Because I liked what you guys did, and it could be a good thing." And then we went back to his house and he played us a couple of his songs that he'd written that weren't death metal, 
Um, and we were all just like, this is rad. Let's, let's make a band. And that was a band called Freud's pillow, terrible name. And we were like, I don't know. He was, so he was 16. I would have been 17. And we started this band. And, um, then Freud's pillow became because of the sum of the parts, this like really technical, tricky, uh, four, four is boring melody, whatever you know a normal chord <laughs> progression like just the ultimate musical self-sabotage in my opinion like and then we were doing okay and getting gigs and all that and but cav and i were listening to the beatles and umi and all this sort of stuff so we started eskimo joe as a um revolt against this kind of math math rock that we were making in the other band it is a common thing in uh young musicians isn't it you kind of you want to start a few steps ahead of where you actually are and you, you, you the minute you pick up a guitar or something you think oh we don't want to write something too simple you know or too dumb you're already looking down upon the mere mortals that you are no longer a part of for no other fact than you've just had two guitar lessons and, <laughs> and, and totally this idea of like you have to um you don't want to do anything that's derivative or the goal is to be original rather than good. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that, is it, <laughs> that, that's what we were trying to do. Well, we that, succeeded. You, you, <laughs> you want to appear smarter than other people as well. That is, yeah. that can get in the way of writing a good totally. song. I, I think, you know, I, I've, I've long given up the, the, the idea of appearing smarter than anyone. And it's, it kind of works out in some situations. Yeah, totally. But I, I still think you're, the songs you write are pretty, like, super intelligent as far as chords and melody and all that stuff goes. So maybe you're just naturally an accessible genius. Um, <laughs> but it's, isn't it like some days you turn on the radio and you just hear the most simple three chord, you know, very simple melody kind of tune that just cuts through the noise and it works. And then a week later, you know, Frank Ocean will put something out and it's super sophisticated yeah. and it, I, it doesn't, I feel like simple music and complex music, you know, that there's, there's no one or the other anymore. There seems both like, Everything seems to have a large audience in some in some capacity, particularly now that I think hip hop and R and B are they're kind of having like their prog rock moment. Yeah, totally. You know? They've been through punk, they've been through the fifties, they've done the club bangers and the yeah. And books, then Frank Ocean now, puts out a record where he just mutes the drums on everything. Yeah, yeah. And they go, all right, swim in that for forty five <laughs> minutes. I'm not going to give you any cues whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> well, you listen it's to like genius. To Pimp a Butterfly, the Kendrick Lamar record, which is mm. like, I mean, that's like the dark side of the moon of, of rap or something. It's like a, mm -hmm. or a Rick Wakeman, you know, like he may as well have been wearing a cape while he made the entire record. Mm. There's, there's, it's, it's like a genre gets very comfortable and starts playing with, with ideas, you know, rock, rock got to that point and then had to be brought back down to earth, you know? Yeah. So what, what, which bands do you mean, um, did that or which, which era? 
which bands. I mean, yeah, the, with the rock, the thing. rock thing. Well, I think like you know the seventies and eighties, particularly the seventies with with rock getting more and more progressive and avant garde, and um, and then punk kind of hit reset mm. on that. Mm. You know, punk was kind of an answer to progressive rock. Yeah, in a sense, totally. You know, and so suddenly all, all the you know, Deep Purples and Led Zeppelins, maybe, and all the all the massive dinosaur bands looked irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punk in one moment. Punk was like the great Brexit of prog rock, yeah. and it was the great destabilization of of a complex region. Yep. And it's taken decades to even think about rearing its head <laughs> ever totally. again. You know, I would. But it's, and was it's, Nirvana the next one? I think so. I guess yeah. I wasn't there, <laughs> but from my observation, <laughs> is that I think it's yeah. I, well, when's the last time rock got really complex on a mainstream level in terms of musical sophistication? I Probably think Radiohead. Yeah. Okay. So when that was came, I remember when um, OK Computer came out. Um, and then to a greater extent, Kid A, but OK Computer came out off the back of grunge and obviously Radiohead came out of grunge mm. with their first record and Creep being massive. And then when they put out um, OK Computer, it seemed to completely shift the goalposts of what you could do with a guitar rock band. And it was, you know, reviewed as a prog rock moment, mm. but it was still completely soulful it wasn't um up its own ass kind of thing it was it was still um it's still connected but it but that's when it it got super it seemed like you could it was okay to try to be intelligent again then you know like coming off the back of grunge where it where if you were good at your instrument or you sung perfectly and rah 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 it just reeked of effort yeah yeah yeah, I feel like Radiohead Radiohead had this quality of they never. I guess it's all subjective, isn't it? But I never felt like they were trying to lose you as a listener. Like, yeah, they were they were never disappearing up their own ass on a musical, in a musical kind of way with their records. Although maybe some people might say they were. Well, at the time, I, I think as you know, you know, coming or getting into really getting into them in the bends. And this is amazing songs stripped back to an acoustic guitar. They were still incredible. And then when Kid A came out, I was kind of like, oh, fuck off. Like, <laughs> come on. Give us something. <laughs> but then, you know, talking to, you know, say Edwin, who I work with often, who's like 10 years younger than me, he he sort of started with Kid A, mm. you know. And it, that, that slightly younger generation across the board, Kid A is their favourite Radiohead record. That's interesting. I started with OK Computer, but only because um, I think I'd, I'd had some failed attempts at listening to Radiohead when I was 14 or 15, but a friend of mine um, put on that documentary, Meeting People is Easy. Oh, yeah. And I sat there and watched that, and I felt like the it's, it's essentially a, a tour documentary of that album period of OK Computer and them kind yep. of getting swept up in the craziness and the and fame Tom York that. not dealing yeah not dealing at not all not dealing with it at all but the way it's 
put together is quite abstract. It's not filmed like your normal linear narrative rock documentary and the film kind of complements their music in a way. Yep. And so I felt like having it like... felt cut and paste. Yeah, I felt like watching the doco, I felt like it... it it put me in the right state of mind to in, in appreciate their music just right off the bat. So then it was just, okay, computer, and then one step back to the bends and then two steps forward for the rest, you know. I didn't really do the first record very much, I found. No, I don't think it was it was great. But I know they played in Perth um, touring that first record, but it was right on the back end of touring that record and they've ri- they'd written all of the bends. And apparently they played Creep like six songs in yeah at Fremantle Metropolis and everyone you know half of the audience left after Creep and they were playing the Benz yeah like the whole like one of the best records <laughs> of that decade and everyone's like see ya <laughs> they just left <laughs> big mistake uh maybe they well they, they probably did that deliberately I guess by that point they would have hated that song they would yeah. they, they didn't play that song for a long time Totally. In their but they, they, and they, they did the prog rock thing, but they, they also came out of, like, the Pixies is the, the, the thing they talk about the most as their biggest touchstone, which is so not prog. No, yeah, and, and Nirvana as well, kind of, everything seems to come back to the Pixies for a lot yeah. of big bands. I mean, the, the main thing about the, I'm trying to, what is it about the Pixies that you think, kind of solidified so much, you know, moving forward in rock for so many people. Well, it's like they, they fully distilled and nailed that quiet, loud, quiet, loud um, dynamic yeah. um, at that point in in the first record, but then like really crystallised it on, the, on Doolittle in 1989. Mm. And then you could imagine that all the underground bands at that point were just flat out listening to that record and that became the blueprint for obviously you know Kurt Cobain said that Smells Like Teen Spirit was basically them trying to be the Pixies yeah um, so it came of off the back of that that dynamic thing that they that was so exciting that make that growing up when I grew up that seems obvious like make the chorus bigger than the verse yeah but it, <laughs> but it was like it was a revelation or something maybe there's something just so accessible about after hearing this big loud chorus going back down to just bass and drums with someone singing over the top yep it it doesn't take too much brain power to kind of hear what's going on there as opposed to you would hear a similar dynamic in quiet and loud in like an in excess song but there'd mm. be a lot more moving parts like funk guitars and synth bits and there's yep. just that extra level of separation between the listener and what the band's actually doing yeah, yeah. So, it, and it was purely like visceral, like that when the chorus kicks in. It was just this. Full, there was not. It was. It wasn't uh, sophisticated. Mm. It was just like brutal. Yeah, force that you felt. And it's like when you know Teen Spirit first time. Everyone's got their first time. You heard that song story, and it completely, like it was like an atomic bomb going off as far as any any other thing that you'd heard on the radio for the 10 years previously suddenly was irrelevant in a minute that is the last song i hear people talk like that about i've heard multiple people you know 
ask me or tell me where they were. They can tell me where they were when they first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio. Mm. I don't think I've heard many songs like that spoken about in general. Not in, yeah, to- totally. Not in the rock world, but then, you know, in the hip-hop world, there's that's a whole other other thing and maybe, you know... Um, you know, when Kanye put out, put out like Black Skinhead or something like that, even though that was a bit later on down the line, that was like a flag point, like moment where it felt like this is, no one's heard this music before. Mm. He's done that a couple of times. Was there a flag point moment for the early stages of Eskimo Joe? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was... Um, there was a, we'd done these first two EPs, and we actually going back. We we started the band, um, and it was just us jamming in Cav's Cav's bedroom, kind of thing in his share house. And we were doing these folky, um, kind of quirky of crowded housey kind of folk songs that Cav and Stu were writing and singing harmonies and stuff like that. And we really enjoyed that. And then we entered this band comp, and we had this one song that was a complete novelty called Coco Pops, and mm. it was. Um, give me, give me Cocoa Pops, give me chocolate shake, give me, give me everything. I want to shake and bake. Give me, give me Cocoa Pops. I can't sing that fast. But it was like, it, it was a complete earworm and totally stupid. And when we, we knew that the crowd would, you know, react to it instantly. So, so we entered this, um, just to do a gig, we entered, um, campus band competition and, um, we said, okay, if we have five of those, then we could win this band comp. <laughs> and it was that calculated and so we wrote four more um in the same mold and then we entered the competition and we we won the national competition but then suddenly we weren't the band that we thought we were we were this kind of novelty half comedy half stand-up routine that that (laughs) Kevin Stu did so well at the front and the tunes followed suit and it was all in aid of getting an instant reaction rather than wearing, you know, emotions on our sleeves and, and trying to do something serious. So we did that and then, then we were that band because we went and recorded the Sweater EP and then we had no idea that Triple J had it and, and uh, Jane Gazzo, who was doing the nighttime request show, played the song and I think it got a positive reaction and then she got in touch with Arnie Frollos, who was the then director of triple program director and said you've got to add this song and they added it we didn't even know they had it and it's suddenly you're getting in your car to go to go up the road and and uh buy buy some milk or whatever and the song just started coming on like five times a day wow and and we're like whoa okay great um let's buy a one-way ticket to sydney and just like see how long we can last on the dole doing as many gigs so we signed to harbour booking agency and started doing as many gigs as we could making no money living on you know um fart jokes and and baked beans and um and then we were that band and then it got to a point the flag point moment going back to your question was we were starting to write we'd made two eps in that mold the joke thing and uh, it would got to a point where we we're like okay this uh, it feels like we're if we go further with this, with making an album, if we make an album of this, then we've absolutely painted ourselves into that corner. Mm. And there's no, there's, didn't feel like there was no way out of that corner. And so we were writing for the album and we're starting to write like that. And I went around to, to Cav's house and Cav and Stu were already there. And we'd, we'd all just get stoned and 
and write the first Eskimo Joe record. And I walked in and they were writing, they were actually singing a song to the tune of Silent Night about bears. It was literally that. And (laughs) I kind of walked in on that and went, okay, this is it. We can't do this. Like Cav, I knew that Cav had other songs that weren't like that, that he was keeping on the side for himself. And I was like, let's talk about who does what well in this band. And then we sat around a table and had this full on heart to heart meeting discussion about, okay, you have, you're really great at lyrics and coming up with these original ideas. Joel, you're good at bringing out the pop sensibilities and working on the melodies and arranging it. And Stu, you're good at coming in a bit later and adding your X factor to that. Why don't we do that, but do it with Cav's tunes that he's got laying around and see see what happens and actually try to make a record that we might want to listen to rather than just something that we're supposed to make right so in so the 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 defining moment in eskimo joe's career kind of began in derailing any chance of cav having a solo career instead (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess so you sort of hijacked his entire plan to leave you guys in the lurch that's it (laughs) Uh, sorry, buddy. Um, and is this is all that going down uh, while you're in Sydney? All that was going down when we come back to Perth and we right. made two EPs and we'd done extensive touring and had been on Triple J quite a bit. And, and there was a moment where we decided that and we decided we we're going to completely disown everything that we'd done before and try to make a, a record that we were into. Right. And what was the and first the- song you wrote? from that moment i think it was it was either wake up or that day oh, i think we had wake up hanging around and it was kind of still one foot in that other camp maybe if i remember it right but there was also a song called head hurts which is track one on on girl yeah and cav showed me uh, that on an acoustic, just strumming away on E and D and showing that wake up some days and your head hurts. And then I come up with the the Beck style riff because yeah, yeah. I thought he was kind of doing a Beck thing. And, um, and then we were like, well, this is cool. This is maybe something that we'd be happy to go home and, and put on and mm-hmm. listen to. And, and that felt good. And so it all came out of that conversation and then we just went went from there. That's really interesting trying to make something that you would go home and listen to because that is the big defining factor between that and music that would get a crowd moving. You know, there's two kind of directions a lot of bands go in, isn't there? They, they, you're either trying to write records or you're trying to make a good live set, you know, a lot of bands kind of go one way or the other don't they yeah and do you th- when you're writing um for your projects are you thinking about the live show at all never thinking about that you know i'm imagining as i'm listening back to the song as it's being produced i'm envisioning playing it live as more as a way of exciting myself you know there's a whole montage that plays out in my head but in no way is that's more for my ego. That's got nothing to do with the music. It's more uh, when I'm writing, I'm thinking only does this sound good when I put it on? Would I want to listen to this like in the car or Does it satisfy you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I heard this come on, would, would, I, would I listen to it? You know, does it interest me? And could I? And then I have these imaginary versions of people in my head 
Mm. And I imagine them cooking dinner or driving to work and and if it, and immersing themselves in your yeah, song. if I can see if I can kind of see them enjoying this, these people that mm. don't exist, then that that helps too. But it's all just it's a very detailed fantasy that has no you know grounding in reality whatsoever. But it's it's interesting what what things you think about when you're trying to decide whether your own output's any good or not. So I, I know that you have a close circle of people that you send tunes to when you're working. Yeah, which I'm luckily lucky enough to be one. At what point do you think, okay, I'm ready to send this to to my peeps? Uh, so there's maybe four or five people max, and uh, that I would send a song I'm working on. I'm a great starter of songs. Finishing songs is another oh. kettle of fish. So I think when I've started a song and I'm excited about where it could possibly go, um. And I've never really thought too much about this, but I think maybe maybe out of fear that I might <laughs> go deep in finishing a song only to find out it was terrible, I, I tend to want to show someone pretty early in the process. But it's pretty interesting because when you send me tunes, they sound really um, realised. Yeah. To me, they, they don't sound embryonic. Yeah, well, songs don't really they 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 kind of for me with the addition of home recording technology and and all the plugins and virtual instruments and stuff, songs don't really stay in a bare chords and melody um, state for long with me. Like if there's mm. a chord progression and a vague melody within 10 minutes, I'll have a drum beat and a guitar sound, and I just kind of go in a direction with something. Um, that's just how I, how I work. I think I get really excited about all the sounds as I'm going. And getting to the end point, like realizing that. Yeah. Getting like a, like an idea. Sooner rather than later. Yes. Which I think comes from, um, one, just the excitement of being able to create a band in a computer, but, Mm -hmm. but also, um, and the ability to be able to do it. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, but because it's just me um, in here doing it, I think when, when I first started writing songs, I had I had a band. I started a band with Pete Forgus, who you know, and yeah. I would I would bring in songs that I just wrote on a guitar and, and show him, and we'd start working on them together. And those songs were never fully finished until we started finishing them. So I think I'm kind of built to want to bring someone in just to bounce an idea off early on in the process, and. Um, so then when I'm making music on my own, there's a few musicians and producers like yourself, a very small number of them that I'll start sending ideas to just because, you know, I guess I, yeah, I enjoy writing on my own, but I, I usually like getting other people's opinions in um, at some point. Well, having received quite a few that I get them and, and listen to them each time. And I reckon it's like 95% of the time I listen to it and go, this is great. Well, it's awesome. Don't print it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know what, Ly- then, lyrics are the big thing for me. Like I rarely have all the lyrics written. There'll be a verse and a chorus and then, you know, at best. Yeah. And when, when I say 95%, I don't mean 5% of the time they're not good. I mean that they, they sound like, you know, I've got no, I, I wouldn't have any constructive input to give. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, know, but that might be as well because, um, you know, I think if you if you receive a voice memo for, from someone of them just singing a song on an acoustic or playing it on piano and singing it, you can you can imagine it's not so painted and and filled in, and you can imagine where it could go yourself rather than if you're receiving a fleshed out song. Mm. It's harder it's harder to hear. Less excavation required. Yeah, yeah. So I try to consciously, like, if you send me something, even if it's dressed up, I purely listen to the the top line mm. and the and the chords, and strip it back, like try to hear through it mm. to its most basic form, and go, is the shape of this melody awesome? Is it you know the, the chords? Are they saying the same thing as what you you're singing about? And is it all you know coming together in this you know thing that makes a great song? Yeah, which is how we worked together when we did the Infidels album because I was bringing in songs just with a guitar or a piano and playing them to you in the room mm. and we were working on those from that. I didn't really start even self-producing demos properly until after that record anyway. So, yeah, it's mm. probably... Well, yeah, that's probably, uh, you know, for, for for better or for worse, we've always done that in Eskimo Joe from the start. That was kind of like a a mantra or a rule if you like that if we could write a song um that you could pick up an acoustic or play it on a piano and and sing it and it stood up as a really strong song like that then maybe it's unbreakable and then you can decide later on uh, what clothes you want to dress it up in um and i still think that today even you know um you know collabing with edwin who's another producer writer like we we work with all these artists or myself working with artists i try to we try to do it so that that we've written the song before we turn the computer on um and the whole song's there the narrative the melody the chords and then we can go in and you know especially with modern pop music you tend to then have a you know put down a guide vocal and maybe some chords then mute the chords and then you've just got to click click and a, and a vocal and then you mm. can like strip back the product take take the chord progression out of it so it's just one note or whatever and simplify it right back from there and start from nothing but the vocal yeah work around it it like that but i think you know that's that's neither the right nor wrong way to do it as in to write a whole song with zero production um that's just how how we'd always do it and it, it seemed Sometimes it worked really well. Sometimes it didn't, you know, like there's, there's probably something to be said for, you know, you're putting down these musical ideas and that triggers the lyric because of the feeling that you're getting out of that musical moment. Whereas we did it the other way where the, the musical moment was triggered by, by the song. Yeah. And how hands-on were you with that first album in terms of the production stage of adding to the songs in their rawest form? Um, yeah, we, we demoed up all those songs pretty thoroughly. And then we, we, um, were lucky enough to use this producer called Ed Buller, who was an English guy who was living in San Fran and he came over and he'd made that Ben Lee records, uh, you know, with cigarettes will kill you. And he'd, he'd made a, I think he'd just done a record that's with the super Jesus. He was having a lot of luck with working with Australian bands and he came over and we had this whole record, um, written, which when you're 22 or whatever, of course, every song wore its 
um, influences on its sleeves and it it wasn't focused whatsoever. Like Head Hurts was the Beck song mm. and Wake Up was our shot at doing something like a cheeky Weezer and then, you know, Who Sold Her Out was just trying to be our power pop rock kind of thing and it it, it essentially sounded like about like a mixtape and then this producer came in and we thought we'd because we were young and and like thought we were awesome we thought we'd written this amazing record and he came in and he was like no it's not good enough there's not enough singles we're like what do you mean they're all singles (laughs) and and it was like he just caned us in pre-production and we that that is that was the biggest learning learning experience in my life in music mm. that that two weeks of pre-production with with Ed Buller and we hated him at the time because our fragile egos weren't dealing well with the <laughs> fact that he was telling us we were shit or our songs were shit and he really pushed us to he'd be sitting there looking at his watch and I, you know kind of I, the song wasn't in the chorus by a minute he's like you're boring me and then he'd go, okay, now I need you to go home tomorrow um, on your one day off, on the Sunday off, and write two singles because we're two singles shy of a record. Mm. And this was consequently after he just had a meeting with the head of the record company. He was starting to panic because they were spending like 250 grand on making this record for, with us, these shit kickers from Perth with this joke band. And <laughs> so that he, you know, Pav probably, who was the record company guy, probably felt like we were, um, you know, biting off more than we could chew. And the producer probably agreed. And then he just put that pressure straight onto us. Sure. So Pav put the pressure on him. He just came the next day and just handballed it straight to us and said, I need two singles by Monday. Said this on Saturday evening. And then his advice was really good. I think he told Cav to go and buy the, um, get a copy of the police greatest hits, which we <laughs> owned but you can you know, you can stream music then, so we had to go buy an, another copy, listen to that, and then wrote two s- singles. We didn't tell him that one of the songs was a half of it was already a song that I'd written two years before that, which was "Who Sold Her Out," sure. which the chorus and the "Who Sold Her Out" bit were were like written two years before that. We didn't tell him that, and Cav stuck a verse that he had onto that, and we had that song, so we kind of cheated with that one, but it ended up being a single. And then the other one was Planet Earth, and um, which was also a single. Why the Police Greatest Hits as the the grand reference point? Well, that was the that was um, a, a a band that we when when we started touring in Eskimo Joe, uh, we all had dif- different music tastes, and, and back then no one was wearing headphones and listening to their own thing on their laptop or watching, you know, series or whatever. We were all listening to whatever was coming out of the Tarago speakers. And the the only three things that we could agree on were the Beatles, the Pixies and the police. Mm. Because like I sure as fuck wasn't going to listen to Mr. Bungle, you know, and, <laughs> and there was probably, you know, so some records that I was listening to that Stu wouldn't, listen to either so so those were the they were the consensus and so they became the musical blueprint for the band basically and it was great because then touring 10 years later we we were all in our own worlds on on laptops watching tv series or whatever and so the music taste 
diverged again. But at that point, when we were all listening to the same music and all in a Tarago for six months of a year, listening to the same records, when we actually came to make a record, we were all on the same page. Same page because mm. our influences, we'd all been on the listening on the same music diet. So it like that was great, and I think when everyone went into their own world of listening to and doing their own thing entertainment wise, it, that's when it became harder to make an Eskimo Joe record. Right. How so? Or maybe the records weren't as good once we did that. That's just a theory. Sure. Like, well, explain that a bit more. Well, like I said, I mean, it, it you know, once, once, um, we all started, like I said, uh, how do I explain this? Once we, we started listening to music, listening, going into our own worlds, um, entertainment wise and music wise, then when we come to make a record, say, say when we came to make, um, uh, inshallah, we all came in with completely different ideas of what record we wanted to make. And that was coming off the back of, um, of black fingernails, which we toured for nearly three years. Um, and had been, you know, had been our most uh, successful record and the most boiled down and the and the most us on the same page record that we'd, we'd ever made. Like there was a mission statement almost at the mm. start of that that came came out of having From the Sea on the, the record before, A Song is a City, and that, that song had connected in such a way and felt like the distillation of, of our band. That song was like... That was us doing all the things we do best in one song, and so then coming into that next record, we went, okay, let's let's make twelve from the seas and put it on a on an <laughs> on an album. They're all e- singles. <laughs> Evil, and so, and so we went, okay, well, well uh, the the the. Uh, the aesthetic of it can be quite dark and, and be a little bit like we can have had this thing after like being at the Aria awards, um, on the song is a city and, and jet being nominated for everything and us being nominated for everything and jet winning everything mm. that we like, like we're like boy dudes next door kind of guys who were into Wilco and, and, and kind of not, not rock starish at all. Right. You weren't mean enough. Yeah. And then there were those guys who were fucking proper rock stars. <laughs> and then it was, it was kind of like, okay, maybe for the next record we should, because we're totally not proper rock stars yeah. as, as human beings, but maybe we should just pretend that we are and, and do, and then it was kind of influenced by, you know, like what you two did with zoo TV when we were growing up, like they mm. became the biggest band in the world and were completely earnest and pr- pretentious in an, in their, in their earnest ways, but they weren't indulgent in the fact that they were the biggest band in the world. And then mm. they put out the next record and suddenly, you know, Bono was dressed up as the devil in a gold suit and, <laughs> and fully going, I'm a fucking rock star kind of thing. So we went, Oh, let's, let's take a bit of that. And so we dressed up the aesthetic of that record as this dark gothic in excess slash eurythmics, all our favorite best of records from yeah. growing up on FM radio 
in the mid to late 80s and put that on a record with 12 from the seas. <laughs> Genius. And, and we did that. <laughs> and it worked. Right. And then and then when we came back to making the next record, of course, every Eskies record seemed to be a reaction to the one before, but Cav had, I think, Fleet Foxes had blown up and it, it, was, a, it was a folky world. Mm. And the, those bands seemed the most edgy and the main, you know, big, but kind of edgy and cool and doing something interesting. And so I think Cav wanted to make that record. Mm. Um, whereas I wanted to make a rock record. And so it, and I'm not entirely sure what records Stu wanted to make was, but we got into a room and made the most confusing fucking <laughs> record ever. Still had a few hits though, didn't it? Well, the, the, the main song did okay, I guess. But it was it just like, when I listen back to that, it just sounds like the most confused. Right. Like a, a band not meeting on the same page. And I think maybe in that time, coincidentally, it was the period where everyone started to going into watching series on their laptops and rah, 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 and going into their own world a bit. And we weren't mm. sitting in Tarragos and doing long drives. We were getting in planes and... And probably life was a bit more comfortable, but it afforded us more time apart, even if we were touring. Sure. So it seems to me that the the approach of three people really thinking about what's the next thing we're going to do and kind of trying to move in a direction you hadn't done before was kind of inbuilt into how the band operated for a long time anyway. It wasn't yeah. the first time you'd sat down and go, right, we got we got big doing four records that all sounded the same. Let's do let's go this way. It's like you've always tried to, as you said, do a reaction to the last record and and change things. So the real difference with that period is the band being in each other's pockets for so long and it's maybe the first record you did where you yeah, in, in your personal lives were kind of more apart than ever. Yep, absolutely. And I think ego as well. Like, you know, that that the success that the um Black Fingernails record had. Then when we came to make the next record, there's the underlying pressure of following up something that did did well. Um, and, and we were probably in denial that there was any pressure because we were in Perth and a long way away from the industry and just in our own bubble as usual. But we probably had um, each band member had healthier sized egos as far as music went and and therefore were a bit more stubborn on holding our ground, standing our ground, each of us. And so it sounds like that as well to me, that record. Yeah. It sounds like one one guy's doing this, one guy's doing this, and one guy's doing this, and there's this confused thing in that it in the middle that is the the album. Yeah, you know, it's funny thinking about the success of those records now. Is it's almost like trying to guess economics pre-inflation. You know, this is a pre-streaming world of music where it's CD sales. And yeah. the meaning of a platinum record was way a lot different to what a platinum record would mean now in which... What does that even mean now, man? Well, it's, I guess it, it takes in stream counts of now rather than just CD sales, surely. But I mean, how, like, what, what, I mean, for any young artist listening to this, can you just explain 
um, if <laughs> if possible, how successful that Black Fingernails record actually was. I mean, how many how many times platinum did that record go? Uh, I think it, it, well, I don't think I know. In the end, it, it went four times platinum, which um, platinum is in Australia, and um, is seventy thousand sales is platinum. So times. For I think it so in the end it was close to three hundred thousand or or around three hundred thousand copies, and it was probably it was two thousand and six. So it might have been along with Wolf Mother, um, and their first record. It was maybe the last gasp of a rock band in this country selling that amount of records. Yeah, I I remember um, that was the year you guys were in the hottest one hundred with Black Fingernails, the song. Yeah, and that that song was just everywhere. Um, I think the only time I ever ventured to the foreshore for Australia Day, which was you know like sixteen year old me trying to go along with what everyone else was doing. I just yeah. the, the one memory I have is walking to a bus and partially thinking, "What the fuck am I taking a bus for?" And then also hearing Black Thing, and I was just blasting out of someone's backyard, and it was this. It, <laughs> I mean, we got to know each other very well a few years later, uh-huh. but that record was so omnipresent, and 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 I remember the album cover. I had I had your record illegally in pieces on an iPod at one point. Like someone yep. someone had given me an injection of their iTunes tunes, right? Yeah, yeah. and part of and there was tons of Radiohead and, and Coldplay and that. Yeah, I think I had half of Black Fingernails, and so I was not really yeah. adding to the platinum situation all the at all. Soft rock, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I can't. Yeah, and did, I remember you came and because um, we were looking for a keyboard player, and you came and um, came and did an audition. I, I did, and that's right. I was sat at this piano at. Was, did you refer to it as Shabby Road, the, the studio at the back of Cav's yep. place? Yeah. I was yep. auditioning and I, I had a few days to learn the songs and I remember sitting there and the three of you kind of, in my mind you were breathing down my necks, but you were probably sitting, you know, a respectable distance away from me. And But, <laughs> but it's that upright piano thing where you're just facing a black board and playing and I, and I look around behind me and suddenly all your faces turned into the the oil paintings from the the album artwork in my mind <laughs> what a horror <laughs> T- terror yeah it was like yeah. a salvador dali like hallucination oh, no. yeah. and the be- i mean the best thing was that i mean you were such a prolific artist songwriter that you coming into the band just to play keys with us probably would have been a massive misappropriation of your talents. I, I, yeah, I was, I think unable to, you know, do that kind of gig anyway. I've, I've always had like this weird blocker um, in my head that forbids me from learning actual parts to other songs verbatim. It's like my ego comes in and goes, change that note or something. So it's, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and before I've even started changing anything, it's just I'm just pulling my hair out trying to learn a part and retain it, like remember it, because it was never I never learnt music like that at all. I always you're right, I, but your your compositions sound pretty cons- considered. It doesn't sound like you j- you're jamming 
in your tunes. No, but there's one thing about like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, giving the tests <laughs> and taking the tests, you know, like yeah. I can, I can, uh, yeah, I can write all the parts, but that's, yeah. it's like a different, it's a two way street, isn't it? Creativity. Mm. There's what you can take in and, and what you can put out, put out. I, yeah. I learned guitar to American idiot by Green Day, which is all awesome. all power chords. So once you learnt one shape... You, what a great education. You knew them all. And hmm. I, I would try and learn guitar solo. I did try and learn some guitar solos, but it was always like um, I, I just wanted to write songs. So it was all about learning what I needed to know in order to write something. Yep. Um, I know that like that famous Lou Reed story of he got one guitar lesson and he learned a two chord song mm. that he, that he had a seven inch vinyl of. And his guitar teacher said, right, what do you want to do next week? And he said, Oh no, I'm done. He said, what do you mean you're done? Like, I just need, I just wanted to learn so what those need. two chords were, you know, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and oh. like, you know, I remember, uh, that yeah, that that was that would have been a different turn of events, wouldn't it? If, if probably would have been a disaster as far as <laughs> you and I going on tour together. Health reasons more than anything. <laughs> yep, death reasons. Death reasons. <laughs> Jeez, I mean that that would be, and that was around the time that you would just done uh, Ghosts of the Past. Yeah. So that's the yeah. record you followed in Charlotte with. Mm. So you've had – so the trajectory is Sweater, Joke Band, Girl, debut album, Serious Band, um, and still commonly referred to as one of the great pop albums to ever come out of Perth. It's, it's a sweetly naive. Sure, yeah. And then Song is a City, which had From the Sea on it and uh, uh, tons of great songs on it, which was kind of like – more serious, Black Fingernails, which is the big, you know, the massive opus, the giant mm. four times platinum record. And then you've got Inshallah, which you, you, you say was like the confused follow-up record. Yeah, yeah. And we worked with uh, Gil Norton, who's the Pixie, he produced Doolittle, like going back to the Pixies. That's, that and, would have been awesome. Well, that's why we, that's, I mean, um, we got him because of that record mm. and he was the quiet, loud, quiet, loud, like the architect in, in a, in a sense of that mm. or credited with that. And, uh, you know, I think a big, big part of that was because he was, it was the Pixies, but you know, he, he at least captured it. Um, does that mean he was the one telling half of the Pixies to stop playing in the verse? Like, was he, th- <laughs> <laughs> uh, the old mute button. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Like, he, I think they just that that was the Pixies. But you know, he he deserves the. You know, he's obviously made he made the color and the shape, which was a favorite record of ours. That second Foo Fighters, yeah, album, which is great, a great record. Mm. And and then um, so we worked with him because we 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 were like, okay, we've we've made Black Fingernails, we sold this many records, and we still haven't recouped our like we're still in debt to the record company, mm. I think, and that that's probably a hangover from the first record costing one billion dollars, you know, <laughs> and it just accrued, and and so we were we were still in debt. So how we were did like, that business it. model not last? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you think well, about the record company, <laughs> the record company made their money back many times over. But right. when you're recouping twenty cents in the, you know, well, that's generous. Like, you know, maybe six cents in the dollar. Then of course you're not going to make it back. Mm. Um, and we made uh, we we self produced black fingernails and made it relatively cheap cheaply. We hired an engineer and we produced it ourselves. And we went to a studio for six weeks. That was a nice studio, but you know back then it was it was still a relatively not expensive record. And we still owed the record company money. So the next one we went fuck it, let's spend as much money as we possibly can. <laughs> and so we wrote this confused. A bunch of songs and went, maybe Gil Norton can sort it out for us <laughs> and make some fucking sense out of this. So we flew him over business class and <laughs> <laughs> I still remember the email where, you know, you know, we shouldn't have even been part of these negotiation, negotiations probably, but I remember hearing someone push back a little on that. Oh, I can't, from the record company, can't he fly economy? And there's his management coming back with, no, he's got very long legs and he's very tall. And then when he walked in, he wasn't tall. So it was... <laughs> um, but he came in and it, but we'd cooked that record so much in the demoing process. Like, you know, when I said sometimes you send me songs and I'm like, this is finished, you know, this mm. is great as it is. Don't change it. We we thought we couldn't help ourselves, and demoed all these songs. Hired a producer, but left left him with zero, not even a crack to get in there. Right. So it was a pretty tough job for for him, and I know he was very frustrated with us mm. in that sense that he was kind of like, "Well, you guys are, you know, we'd." We produced the last record. We felt, vind- you know, like confident that we can make a record ourselves. And then he comes along, and he felt like, well, there's no. How do I get in? Right. Like, yeah, these fully guys, produced demos already. You guys feel like you're self sufficient, mm. and you know, any uh, we. So we, the pre production with him was great. He was all about drums, mm. and and I was drumming on the records, but I wasn't drumming much because I was playing guitar in the band. And so I was shitting myself because he was the dude who had the Foo Fighters drummer fired, apparently, mm. in a Colour in the Shape where Dave Grohl replayed. And his reputation was being completely brutal on the drummer and they're making a record. Yes. And, and you'd been the, the, the drummer in Eskimo Joe since the start, but around mm. the time of... Was it the second record? Did you start coming out the front yeah. and getting in a, a different drummer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I was kind of tired of playing drums every day and, and got my mate Paul to come and play and I played guitar. And then, But then making this record, so I was like really nervous about working with Gil. And he sort of spoke to me on the first day and he's like, I know my reputation is that I'm the drummer killer and, you know, I have people, drummers fired and they never play music again and, destroy their confidence and rah-rah, but mm. it's going to be okay kind of thing. But then he worked me really hard in, in pre-production and he was great. Like he'd, you know, when we were tracking, when I was doing a drum drum take, he'd come and coach me in the room rather than just speak to me through the thing. And a lot of encouragement made me do 15 whole, 16 whole takes of every song mm. to tape. It's got, it's got to be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> 
but he he was great to work with but he was kind of like um it was he had a great sense of humor and we gave each other a lot of shit he was like uncle gil yeah but i i don't think he could make too much sense of the 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 songs we'd the the album that we'd written was just all over no he couldn't save that did you present that concept to him at the start that we want you to find some focus and make some sense of what we've we've done here yeah definitely that was kind of like that that was definitely a conversation that happened mm. for sure about it i just don't know you know the song like losing friends over love or whatever I'm, I'm sure the people listening don't know that song but that can as the second single compared to say foreign land as the, which was a like led zeppelin kind of mm. epic kind of guitar thing onto a programmed pop song for the second single it was just yeah onto um you know, uh, don't let me down and stuff. It was just like a mix, manic mixtape. Sounds like when I hear Foreign Land, I, I, I hear a song written by a band that knows it's about to step on stage to a certain amount of people. Mm. And it's still in your live set, you know. Yeah, it's, it's the most fun song to play, maybe from the seas and that yeah. are like the, the biggest most favorite for the whole band songs in the set. It's like made for, <clears throat> just like you said, it's made for like wowing a, a a big audience on a big stage, I guess. It's it's like an action. We're trying to make an action movie. Yeah. <laughs> like a diehard. Well, it's got that big, in that, song. That, that big Zeppelin moment, doesn't it? Yeah. With the big guitar riff in there. It does, the cashmere rip. Is there ever a moment when you're doing that song where you think, Imagine if you just had an entire gig full of this, just Guitar Hero from front to back. <laughs> yeah, t- I mean, totally, but I think we're, t- we're just too soft rock <laughs> <laughs> to pull that off. We'd be puffed out three songs in. Like, whew. I was listening to a live Wilco record a little while back and there's a bit where... Uh, Jeff Tweedy goes, you fucking ready? <laughs> and the crowd cheers. You're like, you ready for some mid-tempo soft rock? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. As we're talking now, I just have seen the update. Um, WA have just relaxed their um, indoor and outdoor gathering numbers, ah. it seems. Yeah, I think to 10 people. Great. You're over in Melbourne. What's the situation over there with all that stuff? Uh, well, we're at stage three. So that, I think, means that you can't go anywhere unless you have a specific, specific essential purpose outside of I'm going to this shop to buy stuff that I need and then I'm going straight home or I'm going um, to exercise for this amount mm. of time. And then, But you can't. You can't be just hanging out um, out in public. Right. Um, ah, so you can't even – could you just – I guess you can go for a walk. That's still yeah, – that counts. Totally. As exercise, yeah. To- I mean, that's so important, isn't it? Everyone's going for walks now. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Every, it's suddenly everyone's, you know, fitness freaks. Or there's probably a lot of people who, who would otherwise be in a gym, you know, out of sight. Are locked out of the gym now so everyone's just out in the open going for jogs and doing stretching and yeah it's great 
And everyone's, um, you know, saying hello to each other, like strangers, we're passing strangers in the street, people will acknowledge each other and that's... That's good. I feel like we got we got off to a, um, an awkward start with that side of things in, in WA at least, you know. People suss of each other. Yeah, well, you just you, you'd see a, someone walking towards you in in the park as you're walking towards it, and and you, you already start kind of veering edging, off in a yeah. direction, edging away. But even as you pass each other, it's like don't look at them. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like everyone's infected, everyone's the, the the enemy, and that was the first couple of weeks, and then yeah. and then eventually, I know, it's, you know, some people would be more. Uh, willing to give you the nod say hello yeah i think that's that's been nice at least in 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 melbourne and in my experience where we've moved to um people maybe because everyone for once has something in common they're willing to hey we're Mm. co-humans all going through exactly the same thing at exactly the same time for the first time ever yeah there's one common thread that yeah that's something i i only ever um noticed in like Nashville or something, like in Middle America. Oh, where everyone's uh, songwriters. Well, no, <laughs> just that um, that element of people just saying hello as you walk down uh-huh. the street. You know that real that small personable... town thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's awesome. I mean, I've really but... enjoyed that, and um, the skyping thing. You know, um, everyone getting on Zoom and whatever. You know, probably connecting with people that live away from you mm. more than usual because you want to get get on and catch up. And then that we're creatures of habit, so that might become a habit that, that continues back into the mm. whatever it's going to be in six months' time. But it's good to hear that they've relaxed the laws a bit in, in WAA because it tells you they're getting on top of things. But Yeah, I, want, I wonder if it's a bit soon, to be honest. I know there is – I'm in the camp of – as it starts to look more and more promising, still better be safe than sorry. But I understand that not everyone's in the the same position where they can just continue uh, to, I mean, I kind of work from home, you know, not everyone can do that. Everyone's got a different scenario. So for a lot of people, you know, being able to relax laws as soon as possible may be quite imperative to Mm. them being able to, I guess, make a living. And also the mental health aspect of, of it is, I, I I just heard yesterday that in in America, in certain parts of America, they're dealing with um, such larger multitudes of suicides on a daily rate. In a, than, in America, yeah, in a, in a certain part of America, it was just a podcast I was listening to, and it was very it's anecdotal. Someone talking about you know a friend they spoke to who's a cop kind of thing, right? Um, but you don't you don't think about that because everyone's isolated in their own situation, but I, um, it's. We've all got to move at the same pace together, but not everyone's necessarily in the in the right the same headspace as each other to do that. No, I, I think in the how how many weeks are we in now? Like maybe six, coming on six, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think in in our house that it's starting to bite a little bit. Mm. Like as in, um, you know, we can't get back to Perth. So, and that's an important thing for for my partner Sarah with her family being in Perth and quite a bit of my family and we have a baby and so they're missing out on six months possibly of of our baby's life or spending mm. any time and our, our bub's missing out on spending time with her grandparents and uncles and aunts over there. Um, 
So I think that's just come into some sort of sharper focus in the last week or so, that it's all mm. part of the process, isn't it? And that's a new thing to to deal with as a partner. Like you have to be aware of that, sensitive to mm. it, and 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 communicate about it. Um, whereas previously we'd be over in Perth every six or seven weeks, you know, and that's, that's, that's not, you know, that's quite a bit, but it's not all the time. So it, it, it mm. gave, you know, everyone something to look forward to in this much time. We'll see this family. Now we can't get in as it stands. And, yes. and you guys have, you guys have got it contained in WA, it seems. Mm. So keeping yeah, the borders look- closed at this point until we're all on a par would probably make sense in the in the scheme of public health. Yeah, they would need to get the numbers down to zero nationally before opening the state borders and then keep international travel at zero beyond that until, I mean, I guess until breaking point. I don't know if we'll be, like, if... You can't wait until every country in the world has zero cases in order to open up the international aspect of it. I guess you could have essential, you know, like cargo, um, essential work trips. That's, I mean, they are continuing, I think, to some degree, you know. But, essential yeah. casinos. Yeah. <laughs> essential casino clients. I don't know. Essential like, vices. Like, uh, do you really think they're going to wait till? there's zero cases in Australia to open up the borders of WA because that could be like a um, year and a half know. away. I mean, I know Trump solved the riddle with injecting um, disinfectant. disinfectant into, you know, well, <laughs> I've been doing that for years. It hasn't helped. So. <laughs> but your lungs, um, your lungs are clear. I get, look, if, if, if it's likely to take, that long for us to get down to zero, then of course we're going to open them up earlier. I can't, I can't see the country functioning in a way that allows itself to wait until the ideal scenario. I mean, there is the reality of the virus and then there's the reality of the economy and everyone's kind of grappling with yep. which, which balance mm. can we, ha- can we handle? Mm. I think America's cooking it in that they've got too many people that don't know the science, refuse to listen to the science. People are protesting with guns in large numbers about trying to open up the economy already with guns. And, yeah. Have you seen the, the protests in, um, where is it? Maybe Michigan or I think so there, there have been armed protesters um, trying to get uh, one of the states to relax Who, the state. What are order. they doing with the guns? Threatening to shoot people? It's just part of their 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 Look, Republican gun-toting militia vibe. How fucking you know. stupid! Yeah, I mean, look, it's a big country. There's 350 million people. You're going to have probably the same ratio of what? smart people to, to idiots as everywhere else. It's just totally on a grander scale, you know. I see. Um, I see that as you know. What's the point of that? Like that's just posturing and isn't even relevant. I don't know to what it's, they're protesting about. Wait. It's the rhetoric does enter the body politic as well. You know, I would just think about how Americanized some of Australian culture is, mm. um, and we had. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I saw a photo of five or six protesters in Kings Park yesterday 
that they put up on the Bell Tower Times Facebook, yeah. uh, that Facebook page. But it was a real photo of five or six protesters in Kings Park holding up these picket signs that said, you know, the cure is worse than the, the disease and things like that. Like, uh, you know, which is... Uh, that's an American phrase. That's I think that's straight from Trump. Uh-huh. The cure is worse than dis- the disease. Forgetting, of course, the fact that the disease uh, kills people, whereas the the cure, <coughs> me- meaning you know, stay at home until we sort this out. At least you know, theoretically, it doesn't kill people. <laughs> yeah. Theoretically, it shouldn't kill people. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what's going to happen. I, I think that talking to the variety of my friends about this, everyone's got a different approach to the approach to thinking about it as well. It's kind of you, there's the numbers, there's the science that you can follow. And then there's just where your head's at. I have friends that have chosen the apocalyptic dread uh, approach to thinking about all of this, you know, focus more on the bad than the good. And then I know people that are focusing more on the, the hope aspect of it. Than the despair, and then that, that and um, then it, it's the uh, the silver linings, right? Like the positives. Yeah, yeah. Um, I cling on to those myself. You know, um, I mean, for us, we live in this tiny one bedroom apartment. You know, mm. which it, it 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 it's only small in this current climate. By the way, it's it's actually quite. You know, it's it's not like we live in a cupboard, yep. but it's totally doable. Mm-hmm. But in a world where you can't really go out anymore yeah for it's, someone who was out quite often right oh yeah that's I mean, your my job. job is to be out yeah you know <laughs> playing records or playing in bands yep. going on tour that's all done yeah same with same with yourself mm. you know i've I'd, it's weird i think i've settled into the iso thing pretty nicely but then there are nights where i'm just like you know what i fucking want to go to a pub and talk to my mates and no it's totally and it's just it's not on the cards remotely even even if they relax the laws bit by bit the reality of our world you know of rock and roll in a pub to a, a crowd of people that's that's probably one of the one of the later things that will come back and then you know yeah i did see a thing on abc uh you know morning show the other day where someone was uh, you know that the music um correspondent was saying uh it's going to be till but you know, basically, I think they were talking about larger scale festivals, like your splendors mm. and all that sort of stuff. It's going to be until late next year. Wow! Imagine, like, finishing year twelve and not being able to go anywhere or doing it. I feel sorry for you know, really sorry for people that like that, you know, who were like entering those those things that are really special times in your life that when you're first given freedom, you know, that kind of freedom to yeah. go out to a pub or, or celebrate levers or what, whatever it is, even doing year 12, that like, you can't do it at school. Like how much of their social life and, and what shapes you as a person and all that, that happens in last year of high school or whatever, when, exactly. when you move into the real world is off the cards. Yeah. That's a big loss. You know what? One, one aspect of this is you will not, no band will have an excuse for not being tight as fuck after this. The Why minute is that? Playing. Because you'll have had a year of rehearsals and no gigs. Who can, who's Just, rehearsing? Well, if they relax the Maybe indoor in WA, gatherings mate. rule. 
Well, yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> sorry, it's, sorry, it's lonely at the top. I can't even. Um, <laughs> we're not even able to look at another. Music. Uh, the, did you see the? That will, but that will happen well before large gatherings. Oh, yeah. Right. That's. So what I'm saying is there will be for us. Ah. It starts now, and for you guys, it will start at some point. Um, you're so much closer to Sydney, where they did not get the agenda and just continually ruin it for everyone. So yeah, like, even though I, they've I, been practicing lockdown since Gladys took over. Yeah, yeah, they're all they about closed the, the city. Yeah, you know, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> now they she was a genius. Beaches and as it turns out, yeah. oh, way ahead of the curve. Prophetic. But you're gonna have you're gonna have probably a, a good couple of months there where bands just uh, are only allowed to get together for like a rehearsal. So that's what that is. that's what um, Perth felt like. You know, when our band started, mm. it felt like um, you could do a hundred gigs. Um, in in this you know in Perth, which was so felt like a different country to mm. the rest of it, which it kind of it's kind of is a little bit right now. You know the yeah. borders are closed. Maybe they can they'll just go. You know what? Let's just uh, it's working out. Let's, yeah, let's what, what's going. the word? Secede or <laughs> secede? Yeah. Um, but it felt like that in in being a Perth band that you could play a hundred shows, get your chops up, be able to play live, and then hopefully get a song away at radio or whatever. And then once you hit over East, then you could play like you were, mm. you were a um, gig hardened mm. band who'd learnt to play. And, you know, like, you know, gigs are like worth five rehearsals, right? Like mm. all the things that can go wrong and all the, uh, you know, sonic challenges and all those things that you have. And it, you 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 hit that scene which which was where the industry was and the people who you feel pressured to play in front of, you felt like you were ready. Um, whereas as a WA band, we'd go to Sydney and Melbourne and and we'd hear about oh this band is the next big thing. Mm. Let's go check them out. They're playing at the Annandale, you know, or whatever venue. And you go there, and they would these poor. Poor dudes doing their like their fifth gig, mm. and everyone's like the pressure's on, and they can't play yet. You know, like as a band, you know they don't. There's there's something great there, but they're still like a baby band. Yeah, you know that reminds me a lot of um, you. You told me a little while ago you were working with a young artist who was opening for Ed Sheeran. Yeah. And and your job was to kind of get some songs together. Yeah, that was um, artist called Fergus James, and yes. and he he was discovered in inverted commas on um, the Today Show. So it, he was going to a school where they had a, a music program, and they were doing their end of semester or end of year, you know, uh, live performance. Um, thing that they were going to be marked on and the today show was rolling up unbeknownst to to the kids with justin Mm. timberlake and so justin timberlake walks into their final recital and they're all like oh my god it's justin (laughs) and they have to do their their assessment to him and and so fergus played and he was you know 17 i guess and 16 or 17 and played his 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 song and it was really good. And um, Justin Timberlake was like, you know, man, I put that on radio right now. That's amazing. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> and so then out of that came a story in the paper 
about this kid who, you know, Justin Timberlake thought was amazing on that song. And, and then I think he got signed to management and then subsequently went into um, the world of collabing with a lot of different songwriters. And I was one of them. And we got along really well and, and wrote um, together well. And then we wrote together like maybe four or five different occasions and built up like, you know, five or six tunes. Yeah. Um, and then Ed Sheeran was coming to Australia to do the biggest tour staged in Australia's history where he was doing, you know, month-long residency at whatever Megadome. You know, playing to <laughs> yeah. more people. I think the, the previous record was Dire Straits in 1985. So he pretty yeah. much Ed Sheeran played to every <clears throat> second person in Australia on this tour. And, and Jay, uh, Fergus, Fergus got the support and they were his first mm. gigs. So his first gig was at um, Optus Stadium in Perth to, you know, wow. have 65,000 or whatever. And he was 17, um, which I thought was mental. Like I was kind of like, what? When I, t- I, I found out, his manager told me that that was going to happen because they obviously wanted all these stems from myself of all these songs that we'd written so they could put the songs mm. in, the sh- in the show. Mm. And I was kind of like, congratulations. But in the back of my mind, I was, this is going to be a bloodbath for this p- poor kid, wow. you know? Like what happens if he goes out there and just freezes? Like mm. a lot of people do it their first gig. But I think he did really well. But he's, they had a musical director who was also the drummer who was really, really um, I'm not sure what his name is, but he was, did this really clever thing where he had a microphone that he did backing vocals on. And he, if he pressed this pedal down, the microphone would only go to Fergus's in-ears. And he coached right. him through the show. So wow. if he missed a cue in a song, if he missed going into the second verse, the drummer could go, it's all right, man. Don't panic. Just wait two bars. I'll count you in. We'll start the second verse. And they just like he'd trigger the track to move or whatever. That's awesome. So he kind of foolproofed it like that. And then in between songs, I think he was even kind of going like, you're going, doing really great. You know, say hi to the people at the back. That's the dream. Yeah. And I want someone in my ear every gig just tell me, God, that chord was good. You look bloody good in that shirt. <laughs> That's your inner voice, right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was no, genius. No, 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 no. <laughs> but that, I thought that was amazing, like that they, they thought, you know, they were that clever about it. And he got through the gigs and did really well. And they all seemed to go great and they were his first shows. He'd never played yeah. it his own as an artist at a pub even wow yeah and and of course he's he's still doing so well i see his you know his tunes come out and he, and he tours and he's, he's doing the thing you've you've kind of solidified yourself as a, a character who who people send new artists to to kind of develop something with hmm. haven't you yeah. Uh, yeah over in melbourne i fe- i feel like my impression of that is that kind of started um around the time that we were making our record together and you were making the last Eskies record, you started working with Meg Mack um, in the early stages of her kind of music. And I guess through that it's it's become more of yeah. a thing now for you to work with new artists who haven't put anything out yet. Um, is that kind of where it 
do you think that this kind of trajectory for you kind of began? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and that was great. Like, um, uh, Meg's boyfriend at the time kind of got in contact and said, Hey, my girlfriend's written, um, a few songs and I reckon it'd be great if she, Mm. um, recorded them with you. And I was like, cool, man. Like, um, let's meet up. And so I got in touch and Meg came over and, and, and showed me the first tune that she wanted to record. And we did a pre-production session at my house and at the, as soon as Meg started to sing, I was mm. like, whoa, that's, that's amazing. And it, and it, um, it was the first time she'd recorded and this, the, you know, the arrangement, um, we, we messed around with that and, and kind of sorted that out in pre-production and then went in, um, and recorded it with a band that was mm. put together particularly for that session. And she did the first vocal take. And like, so the band had put the track down and I think she'd done a guide vocal and sort of sung at 75% kind of thing. And then when she did the actual first vocal take, I was just sitting on the couch with um, her then boyfriend and Mm. just like jaw on the ground kind of going, yeah, that's insane. You know, it was absolutely like flawless from start to finish. And I was like, oh, wow. Like the discipline in her singing. And the, the way she enunciated, like the three takes, and they were absolutely identical. So it was so um, disciplined and like planned and boiled down and mm. spot on. Even the the way the vowel shapes would change at a certain time, and the and the vibratos of the harmonies were perfectly in time mm. with each other and, and stuff like that. It was mental. And they were so all was songs great. that you'd kind of nutted out with her. No, they were they were kind of like um, they came as voice memos that were like some of them were like forty five seconds long, some of them were like two minutes long, and they were kind of almost like stream of consciousness mm. ideas that weren't at that point probably particularly like put together songs. And then my role as a producer on that was to, I guess, um, massage those ideas into fully realized. Struck, uh, songs with a verse and a chorus and a, a narrative that went through the whole thing. But sometimes, um, sometimes it was the verse was from voice memo number fourteen, and the chorus was from verse mem- memo uh, voice memo number three, and glue that together, and then make the two things work together. Uh, you know, sentiment wise and chord wise and feel wise and all that sort of stuff. And after that first session, it was just Meg and I in the studio. And then it was, you know, half of it was mm. developing an aesthetic as well. It was like the first thing was kind of very, a little bit more trad, like traditional soul kind of thing, but we didn't want it to be too much in that kind of whopper soul world. So we wanted to like put a little bit of Frank Ocean Channel or Orange had just come out. So we wanted to put a little bit more modern production spin on things mm. so it wasn't just yeah. traditional soul and and um but then you know people who love trad soul could get in into it as well you know and i just thought she was sick artist um obviously a great voice and you know pretty um pretty raw as far as a, a songwriter went but like all the elements were there and she had such a good idea um of aesthetic and how she wanted to present her, 
herself as an artist, like even with the, co- the colour of the artwork and the, the kind of the image was really boiled down and and mm. not, not confused and and all that. And I thought that was super impressive. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a great artist. Or mm. Yeah, I, was, I was just thought she was, um, had such a strong vision of what she wanted to be as an, as an artist for someone that hadn't even done a gig as Meg Mac. Like she knew what she liked and she seemed like a proper artist. Um, so it was really, I was really lucky to do that. And then off the back of that came, um, you know, your record with the infidels, which was so good, so much fun. And I learned so much making, and this is just putting into practice all the skills that you kind of learned being in Eskies and collaborating in that and working with a bunch of different producers. And then it was just a matter of getting the chops up with on the engineering side of things and all that, which Eskies, we always had engineers to take care of, to do that. So we could just make the records, produce them, but in the old school where there's an engineer and a producer. By the time it came around to doing, say, your record, Megs and all that, you know, the the industry was at the point where you couldn't, you, there wasn't an engineer and a producer because records weren't selling like they were and the trickle-down effect had happened. So you kind of had to be all things at once. And um, so working with solo artists became really a thing after working with Meg because um, I'd done that and it was just her and I and I was kind of played the role of almost being the band and she... And she was the artist singer. So you can make a record with two people like that. Um, And then moved over, just wanted to get over to um, the Eastern States as quickly as I could after that, because there's such a culture of, of that over here. But then moving here, it's like, it's a different world as far as um, in Perth, you can just, you know, produce produce records every day with local artists and pretty much just have work constantly kind of like that. Whereas over here, here there's probably like three, four, maybe five producers who do all the work with bands. Mm. And then there's a bunch of producers who are producer writers who are working with solo artists, which there don't seem to be many bands anymore. Like there's so many solo artists, you know, that's how people are, seem to be making records rather than forming bands. Yeah. Um, much more than there was in WA. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Sure. So getting into that and then kind of learning that, um, you know, I was pretty like bullish about not spending time in a collab, in a writing session, doing a much, not spending much time on the track, mm. you know, don't get into the thing of choosing a kick drum sound and, 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 and dialing in synths and rah, 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 just write the song and then we can produce it later. But realising as it went along that what what A&R people and management and all that wanted was not to have to use their imagination to what it could be. They wanted to be presented a pretty much a record, mm. like a, a almost finished track that they could hear on the radio. Mm. So then it was like, okay, I've got to readjust that. Yes. And deliver a good song with production. Sure. And then it's another thing. So I moved to doing two days with each mm. artist. 
because I kind of refuse to just do that one day thing where you try you write a song and produce I'd, it in the one day. Yeah, yeah, and the song ends up being compromised. Mm. That's the last thing I I wanted. Like always, not compromise the song. So two days is the thing that I try to do. But then you know, if the song doesn't get away, um, if you present the song, even if it's good, but it doesn't fit, you're presenting it to the artist plus their manager plus their their record company A and R person rah rah rah, and all the things have to align for that for that song to even be released because this artist has probably written with seven other producer mm. writers. So then there's a bunch of stu- stuff that you do that will never be heard and you never get paid for. Yeah, that's another thing, isn't it? It kind of it just goes in the system. Yeah, it's on a hard drive. Some. Somewhere, oh, actually, it was nice. Like just before we started this, right before I was scrolling Instagram, and an artist tagged me in a a song that I'd written with her maybe over a year mm. ago that I thought was just floating around on a hard drive for, till the end of eternity, and she was actually re- releasing it soon. Wow! And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, that one, <laughs> that that two days. Like I always like that song, mm. and it's good when music comes out and you, you other people hear it, and that's good. Like you're like, people are hearing this song that I wrote on or produced, or in your case, you, you're an artist, you put that record out, it's got your name on it, all that, and it's. But isn't I don't know about for you. But the success for, happens for me when you, you finish the song and you like it. Totally. And, it, and you want to send it to Timmy Nelson, who you, is one of your sounding boards and someone you, like, respect and you're proud of it and you go, hey, Timmy, check, what do you think yeah. of this? Like, that is, that's, that's everything. That is the most fun part to me. I find the, the, the part where, I mean, you know, Obviously, we're, we're very different artists as, as in and in the sense of how we release music, and especially in the amount of people that are going to hear it. Um, but I, I find the, the yeah, but the I think you're you release, you're an artist, and I'm a collaborator. Well, when I, that's that's the difference. Sure. Uh, well, I guess what I was saying, what I was trying to say, was I think the process of actually releasing the song and putting it out there into the world, um, I find very stressful. You know, the yeah. the fun part is where you're making the music and you hit play. And and you, you you show it to your mates and and they like it. That's that's the best bit. The next the next bit is all right. Now I got to figure out how to put it out. I got to put it on Spotify. I've got to write a bio about myself in third person again. Oh. Uh, I've got to you know. Oh, and then I've got to, that's so not a joy, right? No. And then you know. And then two months later, you know. I'm sitting in an office at Triple J, you know, spruiking the song to their music team, and which is a very unnatural, very unnatural. You're trying state to be your of being, own right? Person, you know. Yeah, it's 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 weird marketing yourself, you know, because the bit where you press play and show your mates, that's like the only degree in marketing myself I would have. Like, here you go, listen to this. You know, how great would it be if you could just yeah, cunts. <laughs> Fucking listen to this, you wankers! Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I showed them. (laughs) I literally showed them. (laughs) I write songs out of spite to to make myself feel better and others worse. (laughs) Well, when we 
we first met, I think our friendship began out of a showing each other music we were working on. Yes, I remember. And I was at Lee Jones's house and you were at Lee Jones's house. Yes. And he was like, this is Timmy Nelson. And you were super young, man, like at that point. And, mm. and he would, and Jonesy is just like, go on. <laughs> and you're like, what? You're like, go on, go on, Timmy, show him the song. Go on, yeah. get, your, get your guitar, show him the song. And I was like, oh, this is a bit, <laughs> a bit awkward. <laughs> it's a bit much. <laughs> so, and you were kind of like, pulled a guitar from behind your back. Oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> like, <laughs> he went home to get it. Didn't come prepared. Um, and then you played uh, Born in the 90s, mm. that song, which was already gaining cult classic status in WA. And Lee Jones was like, he was all over it. Yes, of course, yeah. Lee was the piano player in Eskimo Joe at that time. Yes. Who then left. And had been a member of the Sleepy Jackson. And yeah, yeah, of course. Is, is like, you know, the best muso you'll ever meet. Yeah. And then around that time, I guess, you were making or you were starting to make the Wastelands record with Burke Reed from Girling producing. Ah, uh, yes. Or that came a little later, but, you know, you were showing me early demos and then I yep. was showing you demos back and forth. And I think there was a string of Bucks nights in which it would... <laughs> <laughs> Twas the season. Yeah, it was the season to to get hitched, and um, we we were uh, often we'd often find a corner at the, you know around the three a.m. mark, and and yeah. and it would sort of be we <laughs> extradite ourselves from the actual party festivities from the festivities, yeah. and it would just be playing each other demos, you know, turned up to eleven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the point where I, I remember our mate Pablo so antisocial. Yeah, yeah. I remember our mate Pablo storming out to us at one point just saying, all right, I don't want to hear any song written by anyone here at this party for the rest of this party. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. What a punishes, mate. It does. Punishes. I call it, it had to be done. I call it Dropbox O'Clock, you know, when you get together with another artist or another producer and, you know, um, you get a few <laughs> few drinks in and it's that time of the night where if you're out at a, at a at a pub or a party, often you'll either find a, a quiet room or just go back to someone's studio, and then you just play each other all the demos you've been working uh-huh. on, going back and uh-huh. forth. Um, which, which I enjoy more than you know being out. Probably, it's like definitely I love that, and it's the most nerdy it's thing. It's so to nerdy, do. and it's like you tend to just turn what should be socialising into a form of work. In a way, yeah, you know, it's five a.m. and you're pulling yeah because you want feedback, sounds. yeah, now, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, tell me how to make this better. I remember showing you a bunch of demos that, of songs that would end up, you know, we were writing for that that album you mentioned, mm. and I showed showed you um, maybe three or four like demos, and it was you know that that late night, mm. and it was at a Bucks party, I'm pretty sure, and it was like enough drinks for it to be the you know, just the honest feedback. Yeah. And you're kind of like, why do you always make it so it sounds like you're smashing the drums? <laughs> and I was like, I took I took that away, you know, and I was like, that's that's a really good point because this song that I was showing you was like a, a gentle 
quite a gentle song. Yeah. And something just about the way I play drums, I think, just sounds like that, even if I'm hitting soft. It's just like, that's it. Yeah. And, and you're like, why, does you, why do you always make it sound like you're smashing the fuck out of the drum? <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. And then we got to work with Burke, and, and he managed to, to do that. Yeah. You know, there's moments where it sounds like it's being smashed, but generally it's kind of pretty mm. less, less meat-headed than my usual drumming sounds. <laughs> well, you know, of all the, all the advice that I've been given by friends and people I respect over the years, the ones that moments like that where someone's just cut through the bullshit and said something yeah. that has maybe in the moment offended me, they're, the, they're often the things that hang around in my mind. They're the takeaways, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw... Um, a producer over here doing a you know a Q and A, and um, he's quite a well known, respected producer. And he was saying he was going about his thing, doing his thing, and then a friend of his, um, he was showing him uh, some stuff, and the friend who's like a great photographer or something, go, just went, you always put too much shit on your records. <laughs> And he was apparently like massively offended at the time and was considering unfriending this person in a a real world sense and then took it away. And then once the ego bruising goes down, you actually think about it and you go, that's actually really good criticism. Totally. Well, so much of your ego is a part of your creative process. You're, you're, You're embracing your ego. The fact that you want and expect to have your silly little ideas heard by anyone else. That's mm. the performer is driven by the ego, the idea that you yeah. get up. Like, and self, self-doubt's poison to Self-doubt that, right? is poison to that, you know. I mean, we're the, one of the few people in the world that rocking up to work, you know, a day in the office is getting up on a stage, elevated above everyone else, having all the lights on us and not them and expecting them to all face <laughs> us while we do our job. I mean, if Karen from Accounts expected that, when she rocks up to work, like it just wouldn't last five minutes. But <laughs> like, but that's that's what we do. So it's like we have to embrace our egos and figure out a way to navigate that. You know, you mm. can disappear completely up your own ass. But yeah, then, we're, we're ironically, as as musicians seeking that approval, you're probably riddled with insecurity. Exactly at the core. Yeah, but you've got a full yourself and everyone else at the same time that you're sure as shit Mm. about what you're doing artistically yeah you kind of yeah you're riddled with self-doubt and insecurity for a lot of it but then that moment where you feel you've you've written a good song and you're showing it to people and you're like fucking there you go your wankers listen to this you know you're part of (laughs) part of you is clinging on to a rare moment of Mm. it's like an injection of self-belief that part of you knows won't Mm. last um, mm. You know, it's yeah, and the, the most interesting artists I, f- I find, like you know, in in Eskies, we never, I don't think we ever until the second, like the last third of our career, we did, never suffered like self doubt. Mm. Um, we always had this blind confidence that we were going to be able to make the music we wanted to make, and it, and people would enjoy it, and we'd be able to tour and make more records. And there was this blind self-doubt. But the human beings in the band, I think, were, you know, were still are kind of 
like slightly broken people. Mm. So, you know, other, you know, and I think that's kind of maybe, I don't know if it's necessary, but I find people who are, you know, working with different artists, if you work with someone who's completely well adjusted, Mm. you're kind of like, well, you're talented, but I can't like, where's the buy-in as an artist? Like as someone who you're going to be intrigued to hear the next chapter from. Well, part of being well-adjusted, I think, is having a handle on your social skills and your your communication skills. And Mm. I think what drives a lot of artists is the repurposing of communication skills from the world of conversation to the world of artistic expression. You know, I've always said that the biggest problem with being an artist is that while everyone else is nailing how to participate in life, you're spending all your time mastering how to observe it. And mm. so, and it's a shame to think, because the, the, the other end, the other side of that is the cop out of the, the tortured artist mentality, which I think there is a bit of a uh, revolt against. Yeah, but do you think some people put that on? Some people do put that on. Um, I think that there's an element of self sabotage in a lot of artists. I mean, I, I've had to pick myself up on that just in not that you're putting on the facade in general but that you you pick up certain behavioral patterns that fuels your creativity if you if you have a string of ah uh, i see writing songs about you know having self-destruction yeah so whatever. yeah it kind of or or relationship destruction or yes whatever. because it's the, when the the idea that a lot of people say writing music is therapeutic but Mm. therapeutic doesn't necessarily mean that it will fix you it's it's in the same way that just you know softly massaging your foot might be therapeutic to those who you know have a hard (laughs) time walking around for too long but it's not going to fix that issue is it so it might feel good to write down your problems and put them into music but i think for a lot of artists um the buck stops there in terms of self-care and and repair and it be, it's like this deadly cycle. Some artists take it to the nth degree. Um, artists like Elliot Smith or Kurt Cobain, I think, who they never stop pouring their heart out into music. But things didn't end up so well for them. And then on the other end of the scale, you might have artists who a few albums into their career seem to settle down in life and get happier. And people might mm. argue that their music suffers. Well, once they work through their demons... Or, yeah. or become comfortable, yeah. therefore less... Like, like Oasis, we're never going to be great mm. after two records, right? Sure, yeah. Because wasn't the whole thing, like that documentary about two kids, co- brothers coming out of commission flats, culminating two years later and mm. headlining um, Nebworth? mm um, and then the whole thing was about that, right? If those guys can can get out, then we can get out, and that's what everyone bought into. Totally, but I don't think the actual content of what music they were creating was all that much a reflection of their situation in life. It was more like a, an antidote. They were writing songs like Live Forever and these messages of positivity, not drawing directly upon the down and dirty kind of backgrounds they yeah, came from. Yeah, it was from. imagining yeah. 
imagining a a better reality. Yeah, like uh, and, Noel said and, in an interview that he wrote "Live Forever" almost as a reaction to the fact that Nirvana had a song out called "I Hate Myself and I Want to Die," and he thought yeah. that's fucked. Kids shouldn't be listening to that. And he seems to be someone who has, you know, all the success in the world, but but couldn't see it. And he and he wrote "Live Forever" as you know, like a message of positivity. You know, um, I was thinking about that song yesterday. Because I was watching your um, performance on Instagram and like I was like listening and as usual, you know, this is not um, pissing in your pocket or at all. This is just my honest opinion. Like there's these perfect songs, perfect mel- melodic shapes, beautiful lyrics, it, like all of it. But there were, out of those four songs that you played, mm. Then I thought it started thinking about live forever for some reason that that probably because you're a big oasis man and I was like oh there's not he he's totally on that in these four songs there's no no songs like that mm-hmm. they're kind of more um, I don't even know what fucking point I'm making but the, the the songs that you played they were like laments like is it Caroline oh sure yeah 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 those kind of things where there's there's this part of your personality, I reckon, that's very much about um, imagination of the best scenario. Yes. And there's a slight hedonism, hedonistic thing about that and, and all that goes with that. But that's what I feel like Noel Gallagher was probably thinking when he wrote that song. Sure, It's so elated mm. from... Like, but but fault from a not not place of elation. Mm. But somehow it's like doesn't to to write that song and it not be fucking cheesy is almost impossible. I think where they came from had a lot of you know the context of of that song historically. You know, I mean, look at bands like the Stone Roses. You know, also came from like a working class background in Northern England in the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. and their first, the first track on their debut album is I don't have to sell my soul. He's already in me. I want to be adored. Just that unabashed, um, aspirational, we want to rise above this yeah. thing, that kind of, which is a very British thing. That the DMAs have tapped into a little bit. They have. Yeah. Now as well. It's interesting to see. That's probably why they're so busy over in England. Rather than but they're, here they're in headlining massive venues. I was such a fan of their last record. Yeah, like I was like these. The every one of these songs sound like they've fallen from the sky. Yes, like it sounds like there's no effort mm. put in, put into writing. It's seamless. Like you don't even notice that you're going from the verse to the chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The song's so seamless, like like a Neil Finn song. Yeah, and that. That's such a hard thing to do, you know. It is, but when it works, it's undeniable. I mean, when when I was in London a couple of years ago, I went to Liam Gallagher's show at Finsbury Park, and he put on this yeah. two stage festival style gig, and he didn't uh-huh. he didn't announce any supports until I think oh. the day. So fifty thousand people rocked up to see Liam Gallagher, knowing that there was a second stage, and. 
he filled out the day with all these relatively unknown um, British support acts. I mean, I, I, I didn't know them obviously because I don't live there and I'm not tapped into the scene, but I was trying to talk to people in, in lines to, to get drinks about them. about them. And the vibe I got was not a lot of people really knew a lot of the bands that were playing. Like he'd really reached into the underground and, and mm. plucked out a bunch of artists. Um, cool. But we rocked up at maybe 2 p.m. and the DMAs were on the main stage and they were the one band that people did know. And at 2 p.m. I saw kids on shoulders shooting flares into the sky like while, while the Singing DMAs were words. playing. And then yeah. after that, just four or five other support acts that didn't get anywhere near that reaction. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, With- the big moment was, you know, there was this like 40-minute break between one support and Liam and everyone was whispering, who's it going to be, who's it going to be? And, and then Richard Ashcroft just walked out and grabbed an acoustic guitar and did like the four big Verve songs. Oh. And the place just went that fucking been ape shit. Yeah. Amazing, yeah, dude. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Man, we were listening to, we were doing some Eskies shows recently and I popped that record on. And, you know, the side A is just, yeah. that hasn't aged. It's urban like hymns. That will never, yeah. that, will, that record will never date mm. because the songs are so classic. Yeah. And, and not in a, not like in a pastiche way like the that Oasis could be like, oh, this is them doing the Beatles or whatever. It's like, it's just of itself classic, yeah. classy as fuck and amazing songs. And his voice too. So everyone went bullshit crazy. Yeah, yeah. You had 50,000 people um, in broad daylight just wow, just screaming the words to, you know, Bittersweet Symphony, Drugs Don't Work, Lucky Man. You know who won, to- who, who took out the title from Britpop in the end, I reckon, is Damon. Damon Albarn. Well, Blur were... Te- he won the war. That's because Blur were technically the better band, you know. The, 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 the big success of Oasis, I think, was more encapsulating a spirit in the music and the timelessness of the raw melody, whereas blur from a technical standpoint they had just more well crafted intricate arranged songs um but then 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 the gorillas and then to go on yeah exactly and for him to go on and do the gorillas become completely relevant in a completely different guise for another 10 years yeah you know which is weird because the gorillas are probably one of the probably the biggest super group of all time if you think of the fact that they've got Blur and The Clash and De La Soul and mm. Bobby Womack, all these various members in the band. Yeah. But then the facade of the cartoon animals and them hiding behind that where it's literally all, it becomes all about the music and mm. just how definitive the music of Gorillaz has become, you know, how much, how influential their sound has been and for that to be the second wave of, you know, Damon, yeah, of his career is, and he 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 kind of drove the gorillas, right? He's he he's the linchpin in in that, right? You'd have to ask Damon, but he'd say yes. <laughs> you know me, and I know you, and I could sit here talking about gorillas and Oasis and Britpop all day, but I'm going to have to get editing. Edit this. I'm going to have to edit this down and get this out by tonight. Great, Joel Quatermain, thank you so much for being on my little show. Thanks, Timmy. It was awesome. 
Look, I just wanted to have a chat with C. Of course, and we'll and it, we'll have many more chats. Hope so. We'll look forward to seeing you in person when this all clears up. Absolutely. See you, bro. See you, mate. Have a good one. Have a good one. I'd probably say you must be crazy. It's been so cold. Well, there we have it. That was a pretty epic, uh, but very uh, therapeutic conversation with uh, my mate there. Um, hope you enjoyed that as much as I did this morning. I very much think it's time for bed. I uh, will look forward to doing this again. Uh, I know you're not going anywhere. So until next week, stay safe, stay alive. <laughs>